Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Rob Long, National Review Online contributor, co-founder of Ricochet, and co-host of the Glop podcast, filling in for the vacationing Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America, and Rob, it's great to have you back. Good to be back. But, but Garrity's on vacation all the time. Does he? What does he do? <laughs> he must really love the beach. When he's not between yeah. two scorpions, I think I'm contractually obligated to mention that. So uh, That's right. <laughs> he, is, he is also doing a little bit of promotion for the book while he's out. But uh, we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And let's start with actual justice, it would appear, for people who committed actual crimes in the realm of politics. This is Fox News pointing out a second aide to New Hampshire Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan is facing federal charges stemming from a scheme to publicly post the personal information of several Republican politicians amid the contentious confirmation hearings for now Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The aide, Samantha DeForest Davis, was a staff assistant in Hassan's office from August 2017 until last December. She was fired after Capitol Police discovered her possible involvement in the so-called doxing effort. Court documents accuse Davis of aiding 27-year-old Jackson Costco, a former Hassan aide who has pleaded guilty to five federal offenses, including two counts of making public restricted personal information and one count each of computer fraud, witness tampering, and obstruction of justice. Prosecutors alleged Wednesday that Davis was persuaded by Costco to wipe down Senate computers he had hacked. Davis now faces two misdemeanor charges, one federal count of aiding and abetting computer fraud, and a district count of attempted evidence tampering, the Washington Post reported. Also on Wednesday, Costco himself was sentenced to four years in prison in the scheme and was required to turn over the cell phones, computers, and other equipment he used. So, Rob, we're so used to politicians Right. Either either skirting the law or flagrantly violating the law, and somehow they never really face any major consequences for it. Obviously, these people are lower on the totem pole. They're not actual elected officials, but they're certainly political operatives. But at least there are some consequences here, and that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. I mean, I, it's also the tip of the iceberg. I mean, if you read the story and you read about Costco, you realize that he's a jerk and that he was a jerk to his coworkers. So it was probably easy for them to, you know, throw them to the wolves. The next question is going to be what happens when someone does this and it's going to happen again, right? This is the beginning. And he isn't a jerk. And what if it works? And what if right now it's retaliation against Republican senators giving their home addresses away for their support of Brett Kavanaugh? But what happens when it's private information about somebody that is released by somebody that everybody likes, right? It's just going to happen more and more and more. It's nice that there's been an example here, certainly an example set, for the future. But I mean, listen, these people, especially in politics, are absolutely zealous. They are absolutely 100% convinced that they are on the right side of every issue. And they have easy access to very sensitive information. This is, you know, we're going to be reading this story a lot in the next coming years. So his biggest flaws were even before he started. He was a jerk and it didn't work. So if it had worked and he was a nice guy, you think this wouldn't be happening? I think it worked and it was he was a nice guy and and he hadn't irritated his coworkers, which he clearly had done. I'll bet it would be different, right? True believers, especially the Kavanaugh hearing is a perfect example. What would they have stopped at to stop Brett Kavanaugh? Well, that's an interesting take, Rob. I hope you're right in one sense, because if jerks are going to be prosecuted for being criminals in Washington, the docket's <laughs> going to be full for a very long yeah. time. I know. And that's almost too bad. Like, that's uh, who's, who's going to lean on, turn off the lights? <laughs> that's right. So. 
<laughs> we'll find out if that actually uh, ends up happening. Maybe the second criteria you have there, their tactics actually work, becomes the ultimate decider of whether or not they're prosecuted. Right. All right, let's go on to our bad martini now. And this is the latest in a string of really bad things as it relates to Iran. Uh, A few weeks ago, the United States quickly repositioned forces to the Persian Gulf. We later found out that it's because it became pretty clear Iran was moving munitions in a way that uh, suggested they might be sending them along to some of their other allies like Hezbollah or other very bad actors in the region. Then in just the past few days, we've had the attacks on the tankers. Now we've had Iran insisting that they are going to blow past the uranium enrichment limits. And now we've got this story, Associated Press. Iran's Revolutionary Guard shot down a U.S. surveillance drone on Thursday amid heightened tensions between Tehran and Washington over the collapsing nuclear deal with world powers, American and Iranian officials said. Though they disputed the circumstances of the incident, the Guard said it shot down the RQ-4 Global Hawk drone over Iranian airspace, while the U.S. said the downing happened over international airspace in the Strait of Hormuz. The different accounts could not be immediately reconciled. The U.S. military central command called it an unprovoked attack, and President Donald Trump tweeted that, quote, Iran made a very big mistake in shooting it down. So I'm pretty sure I know why they can't reconcile the accounts, Rob. I'm (laughs) guessing that one side, and I'm pretty sure I know which one, isn't quite telling the truth here. So how quickly is this escalating, and where is it realistically headed, do you think? Nobody knows. There's two problems here. One is that you no longer have an international coalition that is unified. That's partly Trump's fault. It's partly the fault of the original Iran deal. But, you know, there there will be no picture of all of the great Western powers standing in a row and in a line with an aligned attitude towards Iran. That's that we, we blew that up. And so there are consequences to that. And those consequences are that there's disarray. And in disarray, if you have a bad actor, that is what they want. We have created a condition that Iran feels is advantageous to them to sort of wiggle around their agreements and maybe ship some arms and do all the bad stuff that they were sort of restrained or self-restrained from doing for a while because they felt like there was unity on the West. So on one hand, they are doing what is rational, right? Taking advantage of an opportunity. On the other hand, they also see that... It's awfully hard for, I think, for a whole lot of reasons for an American president in 2019 to make another case for military excursions in the Middle East to the American people, especially this one who has been so dismissive and sort of hard to focus and in many ways confusing about our past excursions in the Middle East. You know, he was against the Iraq war. So he says he was against all this stuff. He ran against it in 2016. That was a big part of his campaign. So to now say, well, no, we need to do stuff now. It does seem a little, you know, he hasn't laid the predicate. And so Iran, once again, I think, is seeing that this is the best opportunity they have to get some points on the board. Now, that may they may snap back to that. But I suspect that what will happen is it'll be a lot of yelling and screaming, a lot of uh, saber rattling. It'll be very difficult for the United States diplomatically to sort of go back to Europe and say, hey, look, why don't we come up with a joint message? And then it'll settle down for a while because Iran will have achieved what it needs to achieve. But it's silly to say it's inconceivable to me that this will result in anything that involves American military action. 
Rob, what do you make of some of the Democratic presidential candidates? And I'm thinking of Bernie Sanders in particular, but there might have been some others. I mean, there's dozens of them, so I'm sure somebody else has said it too, that uh, they don't even believe the narrative that uh, the Trump administration is putting out here, that they're even suggesting that these are false flag incidents, whether it's the tankers and uh, potentially even some of these other incidents here. And we know that uh, Trump's kind of sloppy with the facts sometimes. And I know a lot of folks who don't like more of an activist foreign policy are not very comfortable with John Bolton as national security advisor. But that's a pretty far stretch into suggesting that we're faking this whole thing in order to try and spark a war. But it's really not. I mean, it, it absolutely is not. I just turn on the other side. If we're a Democratic president in the White House now and candidate Trump would be saying exactly that. I mean, there are Trump voters who would believe that. That is not a legacy of Trump. He didn't create it, but it's certainly the political atmosphere. He himself has created this idea of the sort of paranoid suspicion that the American government has secrets. All that stuff comes right from his playbook. Candidate Trump would right now be saying, I don't think this is true. I think that we provoked them to shoot down that drone. And a lot of people would believe him. So it's, you know, once you poison the well, right, it's really hard to unpoison it. Once you decide that your political identity is going to be wrapped up in, you know, everyone's lying to you, the establishment's lying to you, we got into a war we shouldn't have gotten into, the president isn't really the president. Once you start that, you can't then just say now that you're president, okay, I want to stop it now. I mean, Bernie Sanders has taken a page from the Trump candidate playbook, and he's smart to do so because there are a lot of people who voted for Trump who probably are still on the fence. And listen, Bernie and Trump aren't that different. So basically both sides are to blame for the fact we're now at a spot in our politics where at least in some scenarios, we can't just disagree on what should be done, but we can't even agree on what the reality is in a specific situation. That's <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty bad yeah, Where place. have you been? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's true. I think that's really true. All right. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, uh, Rob. And of course, they're all crazy martinis. They all are pretty crazy today, I have to say. 2020, of course, the big thing is the presidential race. But there's also a ton of congressional races. Every House seat is up, as it is every two years, and a third of the Senate seats. And the complexion of the Senate landscape looks kind of like a mirror image of 2018 when Democrats were playing defense. Republicans did really well in 2014, which means they have to play a lot of defense in 2020. And if Trump can't win re-election, a Republican-controlled Senate will be a absolutely vital tool uh, to stop uh, the socialist agenda from running roughshod, depending on who might get elected. So uh, winning the seats that Republicans already hold is important and picking up Any uh, low-hanging fruit that the Democrats currently hold is a major priority as well. And no fruit hangs lower than Alabama, where Doug Jones won the special election to replace Jeff Sessions because Roy Moore was uh, basically outed for having many different alleged rendezvous with (coughs) girls who were underage way back when. A lot of stuff going on with Roy Moore. So uh, you've got a congressman named Bradley Byrne who is uh, running for this uh, Republican nomination. You've got Tommy Tuberville, the former coach of Auburn. There is a uh, state official who's also running. And guess who's back in the fold? Yep, here's Fox 10 in Alabama. This is probably going to happen today. And now former Supreme Court Chief Justice Roy Moore, who lost to Jones in a special election two years ago, has scheduled a news conference for Thursday in Montgomery. Investigative reporter Brendan Kirby in the newsroom with more information on this. Uh, Brendan, do we know? Is more running? Yes, Byron and Lenise. Longtime Moore supporter Dean Young confirmed that news to us this morning. And the former judge's wife, Kayla Moore, also confirmed it to the Associated Press. 
So you've got Trump, you've got Trump Jr., you've got every Republican on the planet in any sort of official capacity screaming at Roy Moore not to do this. So naturally, he's going to do it again. Yeah. I mean, you got to admire that, right? I mean, the other thing is like people forget is, you know, it's Alabama. So we know exactly pretty much what the upper limit is for a Democrat running for the Senate. You know, if in a perfect storm, perfect world, the actual number of votes of people living in Alabama who would conceivably vote for a Democrat for Senate, we know that number. That is the number that voted for Doug Jones, right? There are about 670,000 votes. That, that's it, right? There aren't any more. He got them all. And so if you're Roy Moore, you're like, hey, I didn't, I didn't do so. I only, I, he lost by 20,000 votes. You know, I, I didn't do that badly. I'm a legitimate candidate, and I know more now than I knew then. That's, that is the problem with people who run and lose, is they think, well, but no, I'm better now, right? It's a learning experience. And whereas the voters are saying, no, 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 you lost, not because you didn't, hadn't learned. You lost because we didn't like you. But it's hard when you're a politician to do that. There's something about running for office that just exacerbates your ego function. His problem is going to be the, the system in place in Alabama. It's a very strong. I mean, it doesn't seem that way, but it is a very strong Republican Party there. And they do have some very promising candidates. So in a pinch, when the party's dire and desperate, Roy Moore, you know, he can eke it out. But I don't think the Republican Party and I don't think Republicans in Alabama believe that they're in a pinch. I think they feel very they got a pretty good hand, pretty good candidates there. Put it this way. I think most of his support is going to come from out of state. That may be the case. Uh, So there's already four in the race. And some early polls, probably based just on name recognition, have more leading at this point. Uh, What we learned in the special election, at least, was that you had to have a runoff to get to 50 percent. I don't know for sure if that's the case again, but it probably is. And one name that I saw who might be entering the fray if the polls keep tilting towards Roy Moore, Jeff Sessions. So can you imagine if (laughs) Jeff Sessions wants his seat back, it's Sessions and Moore in the runoff, and then Trump has to tout the greatness of Jeff Sessions in order to keep the seat. Well, if anybody could do it, Trump can, right? I mean, he's <laughs> good at that stuff. Hey, he's he's a in that way, he's a natural born politician, right? A really good politician can do that, uh, and he's certainly a pretty good politician. So that won't be that'll be weird for twenty seconds, and then it suddenly won't be weird anymore. Um, and that's kind of how you know you're you're dealing with American politics. We'll keep watching, Rob. I find it interesting that in a lot of these headlines in advance of Moore's announcement here on Thursday that he's going to let us know what his decision is. So I guess it's still slightly possible that he's decided ultimately not to do this. But given what we heard in that earlier report, it seems like he actually is going to go forward with this. So we'll actually see. But definitely uh, the best pickup opportunity for Republicans. And if uh, Joe Manchin decides he wants to be governor again in West Virginia, that might be another one that Republicans can pursue because Trump's obviously going to win by quite a bit there. Rob, great to have you with us today. Let's uh, let's, uh, do it again tomorrow. Hey, anytime. I'm here. Excellent. Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review Online, co-founder of Ricochet, co-host of the Glop podcast. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. And join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.